Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm very excited. Today we have a special guest, Jared Bauer, who's an old friend of mine. Jared is the uh, former co-owner. He's the, he's the co-founder of Wisecrack, which today hit 3 million subscribers on YouTube. So it's a very timely thing. You guys may be familiar in particular with one of the Wisecrack series called Thug Notes, which was uh, a take on Cliff Notes. Everybody remembers Cliff Notes. And Thug Notes was also a book that Jared wrote based on, uh, based on the series. He is getting out of the entertainment game and moving now to Finland to work in gaming. This is, this is the big announcement. We're making it here on Unsafe Space. <laughs> Welcome, Jared. Thank you, Carrie. It's great to be here. You know, so and, and, and I don't know if you're aware, but like, you know, the whole company, there's a there's a narrative to be made that it all started with you because you introduced me to I don't know if I'm allowed to say comedians that you used to manage. Yeah, but sure. You, you introduced me because I had the idea for Thug Notes. And so I approached you about it. And then you introduced me to Kevin Avery, who introduced me to Greg Edwards. Yes. Who became, who became Sparky Sweets PhD. Sparky Sweets. He was so perfect for it, Greg Edwards. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we know from, so for anybody who's been watching for a while, they know I used to work in comedy and Jared and I met, uh, did we meet working on we met, I Bells? Was, that's right. I was coordinating the pilot for what at the time was called the bell curve. The bell curve. Yep. And then you went on to produce this amazing thing. I knew you were looking for a comedian. Uh, Kevin put you in touch with Greg Edwards and then Thug Notes just took off and it was so fun watching. For anyone who hasn't seen it, you can still, um, obviously, three million subscribers on YouTube. You can um, click over and watch it. We'll put the link in the description. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, you basically took thug. You took the idea of Cliff Notes, but you had this character who was a thug, summarizing classic literature, and used animation, and you made it really fun. Yeah, the idea was that we could take <clears throat> take the uh, you know the most revered ivory tower classics in literature, and we could communicate kind of the most highbrow academic ideas using street vernacular to try to like you know take the snootiness out of uh, academia, specifically liter uh, literature academia, and um, we made like 110 episodes, and it's by far the thing I'm most proud of. It is, it is so funny. I still remember the one you did for Pride and Prejudice was one of my favorites, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> and you know what? I had an idea a couple years ago, and I'm just now realizing, obviously, it was inspired by you. I know you're getting out of the entertainment game, but somebody needs to do this idea. I, somebody needs to do a, a kind of thug notes, but for the Bible. Like, we got a lot of requests for that. It's oh, just like, <laughs> yeah, it, it was just a matter of me and my research partner just not wanting to sit down and read the whole Bible. Because <laughs> you wrote all of these, right? Uh, I co-wrote all of them co with them? Um, another uh, a, a friend that I grew up with uh, named Joe, and uh, he actually had just dropped out of academia. He was actually pursuing a PhD in classics and got very disillusioned with the academic world. So, you know, I was able to say, hey, you know, I've got this idea. We can kind of say fuck you to the academic establishment. And he's like, I'm down. And uh, yeah, so we did it like, you know, both of us were working for nothing, you know, and, and we were putting out an episode a week, which means we had to 
every four weeks we had to read four books because we shot every fourth week uh and yeah it was a passion project uh some uh, all of my favorite because like the the stage with wisecrack was like first it was thug notes then it was another show and then for reasons that we can or can't get into uh you know depending on how you want to orient this conversation it eventually became like a more of a personality play and so for the last like four years i was the head personality of wisecrack i was more video essays it was me kind of selling myself as kind of this uh, personality, uh, what do you call it? Those, um, I can't remember the term for those uh, relationships with somebody on the screen. They seem like your friend, parasocial uh, relationships. Yeah. Oh, I never heard that, but that I'm going to be using that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, we haven't made a Thug Notes episode since like 20, probably 17 or something. Oh, Okay. Didn't you have, because I was watching, you had um, one with a Martian that was doing, explaining film. Yeah, Earthling Cinema. I really like that show, too. The writer of that show, so talented. Uh, One of the things that sucks the most about creating a YouTube business is it's really hard to maintain really good talent because you can't pay shit. You know, like as soon as Earthling Cinema got him a job writing for Mindy Kaling's team, and then she basically just stole him from us. So there's nothing Uh, we can do about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so you guys started doing this series, became very popular. You said you were sort of like flipping a finger at academia, but then academia embraced you guys. I don't think they would these days, but yeah, it's actually surprising. Like back then, you know, the New York times, the BBC, like all of these publications that would probably call me a racist today were very uh, well the thing is if you watch thug notes like there is the utmost reverence for the source material that is like the number one concern of the show is that we're you know painstakingly accurate about the text and trying to make it as fun as possible so um you know anyone who actually engages with the show knows that our primary goal is education and an education in a fun way and you know back then i think you know, we're only talking a couple of years here, but it does seem like ancient history. But back then, I think that people, uh, you know, news outlets especially, were a little bit more willing to, you know, look at the nuance of a particular project that dealt in race. You know, these days, you can't really make a joke about race without it being deemed racist, whereas our show was very much a statement about race, but I wouldn't call it racist. And I've defended it a million times. But, um, you know, when did you have to start? Let me ask, start there. When did you have to start defending it? Because like, like you said, um, the New York times loved it. It was getting a lot of clicks. I know that a lot of teachers were using it in their classroom. Um, and then at one point, at some point, it seems like that started to change. And I, I kind of guessed this was going to happen because as social justice ideology was becoming more mainstream, I was thinking, oh, they're going to start to get shit for this show. So when did that start to happen? Um, So first of all, I was extremely careful. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't have a Twitter. I don't like, you know, try to like become a public figure. So I think like I, you know, was very much like hiding in the background. If you look at any Thug Notes episode, there's no written by or directed by credit, you know, we just because I'm trying not to draw attention to myself. Um, So to be honest, um, we really never got that much negative feedback. We've gotten a couple emails. Um, There have been a couple attempts like in the show's later life around 2017, 2018, like there was uh, a couple of articles that came out, but none that really ever got a lot of traction. 
Um, so as much as I, you know, it would be a better, you know, narrative for the podcast to say that because of, you know, a particular outrage incident made us stop the show, it's not really the case. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we stopped making the show, A, because I was afraid of that stuff. I mean, it would keep me up mm -hmm. at night, you know, especially with people getting canceled. And I just wanted to avoid that as much as possible. But B, it was, I mean, it was a money thing, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Jacob and I owned the business. We were like, you know, doing profit and loss sheets. And for anybody who wants to know about like, you know, the business of running a digital media business, like um, there were certain things about the format just that it was based in a character. There was a very strict format, you know, so like advertisements um, weren't likely to convert based on like having this like separation of suspension of disbelief, having a character rather than it being, oh, Jared, your friend who's going to teach you about squarespace.com because he uses it, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately it's kind of cynical things like that, that really made us stop the show because it was also the most expensive show to make. Cause you know, when we're cranking out content, we had to pay someone to like read the book and, you know, we had to, you know, get like a soundstage for the day. And like, you know, when you're making YouTube content, the price per content needs to be zero and anything above zero is uh, straining the business. Yeah. And you were doing animation for all of them as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how did, because I know you and I have had some conversations. Um, it, it wasn't, you're saying it wasn't that social justice, uh, there was no blow up that caused you to stop doing Thug Notes. Um, but how did social justice, did it affect other aspects of your company and has it oh, affected where yeah, a hundred percent it did. Um, and you know, the, the whole premise of the company is like humanities education, you know, you know, mixing humanities education and fun, it kind of eventually developed into like a mix of humanities education with like irreverence rather than comedy. It was just kind of like this general comedic vibe. Um, and then, yeah, like around 2015, um, these ideas that I thought were just, you know, rather like inane education, just like, you know, um, presenting these like, you know, higher education things without necessarily endorsing them or condemning them. Um, everything became a lot more politicized around 2015. Um, and maybe it was just my naivete, but um, it became a big problem with like, getting writers with writers pitching stuff it made me be in a very uncomfortable situation constantly where writers were constantly pitching me ideas on stuff that was you know uh very uh you know hard left into the social justice ideology and you know it's just not fun for me to censor anyone it's not something i want to do you know but like mm -hmm. i had to come up with reasons why we're not pursuing that angle and stuff like that um and it was a constant tightrope act and uh i knew that you know the whole business model of wisecrack was based around advertising and i knew that there were certain lines that we could not cross about certain subject matters and um overall that made it a lot less fun to do i wouldn't say it's the main reason why I quit. There's probably a hundred reasons why I quit. Yeah. But like, there, but there's like, you know, things, things bothered me. And there's like a lot of like small anecdotes I could say, you know, Jordan Peterson was a huge issue for me simply because like, um, you know, we would be talking about these French philosophers and all of a sudden like half of our audience says like, you know, don't talk about these people are scumbags. The whole writing team is like, you know, constantly going off 
in our group chat about, you know, what a Nazi he is or whatever. And um, Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting there like a leader and I'm saying like, hey, we're not covering Peterson. So shut the fuck up. After I said that, the writer's chat was never the same. It became a very quiet place after I said, hey, no talking about Peterson because it's not relevant to the business. You know, whatever. Um, it was never the same. After was that. this before or after? So for people, if I, if it's OK, if I talk about this, you had me um, you reached out to me and, and we were talking about other stuff, I think. But you said uh, it would be interesting to have a debate between me and someone who did not like Peterson or or who disagreed with him on some things and to see how the, to, to maybe address some of these things on the channel. And so from, from what I recall, and I was, I had, we had not, I had never done a podcast before. This is before Carter and I started unsafe space, but I had been writing more and I had, uh, online, the nature of my posts had changed and, and the whole evolution that was happening for me was already happening. And, uh, and I said, yes. And so we did this pilot or we did some, you know, draft of a, of a debate. And so after it happened, first of all, I'm, it's probably pretty bad. I remember being terrified. <laughs> I haven't listened to it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't listened to it in a long time. Uh, I, that's well, something that was never released. I don't even know where it is. I wouldn't, it's, it's, it's locked in a server somewhere. But from what I recall, you guys didn't release it because you feared a backlash. Maybe, yeah. maybe from your fans or from some of your writers just by, just for having the conversation. Is that right? Is, is that my oh, yeah. memory accurate? A okay. lot of the writers that we uh, worked with, and by the way, I like all of these people, and I disagree right. with about, with them on a lot of these things. And at the end of the day, I hired these writers because they were the best writers, and they worked the hardest, and uh, they required the least amount of labor from me to fix their work. It just so happens that you know we disagree on some things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was there would be backlash from writers. Probably, there's no way that we can please all of the fans. I mean, I tried to keep things as apolitical as possible, but it's really almost impossible. Well, it's hard because of, I think, what's happening at large in our culture. And it's almost, it's, it's not even, I mean, I, I understand the way in which you're using the word political, but it's almost not even political. It's it's this cultural phenomenon that's happening. And my, the way I look at it is, is there's this new religion. It's almost like a religion. It's a cultural religion without a God, but it has a lot of other similarities <laughs> and it's spreading like wildfire. And since, since, um, you know, in the past two years in particular, it's, it's gone very mainstream. And so I, I there, there's almost nothing I can think of that it hasn't touched, except we joke sometimes at unsafe space that it hasn't touched the firearms community yet. Oh, but it has, and it will, it's moving in. Trust me, it will. Um, it hasn't touched fly fishing. And, <laughs> but, you know, ham radio up those, those ham radio clubs, but, 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 but in, in terms of entertainment and YouTube, I can't see how anybody could run a, a company like you guys were doing and, and be hiring uh, people who are plugged into the zeitgeist who you're, you're naturally going to get people who are, who hold a lot of these beliefs. It, right. Uh, yeah. And, and and being the guy who is running the editorial, you know, if I said no to something, there'd be a huge presumption about my moral character, which was always just kind of an ugly thing to go through. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, and in L.A., 
it's just so bad. I mean, you've been out of, out of LA for years, but man, is it so bad. And, you know, more than leaving entertainment, I mean, I'm leaving LA, you know, like, yeah. uh, I guess gaming is still entertainment, but yeah, I mean, it's really reached a new level of ugliness in Los Angeles. Um, will you tell me about there, that? Cause I, I left yeah. in 2016. So one thing that you see, and I'm sure you're very aware of this because you're probably still tapped into the comedy scene at some point, but there are, uh, and I, th so it's this thing where people who are, um, there are people who are struggling in the world of entertainment, in the world of comedy, like happens to most people, you know, like 99% of people fail when they move to LA and they see like, oh, but I've got like this, uh, you know, uh, narrative of oppression that I can start like selling, you know, and that's going to mm -hmm. give someone and then someone is going to have like the moral imperative to hire me. So yes. you have these people who are um, basically just, I don't know, like to me, selling your ancestors suffering is just like the least classy thing that somebody could do. Um and so you have these people who are like building their identity and building all of the content they create based on, you know, whether like it's like Native American rights or the trans rights or whatever. And, you know, I know that I, I've seen one of your social media posts before in which you say that you always try to assume that somebody has a particular belief in good faith. But it's really hard for me to do that when I see so much career expediency being granted to those who, you know, who sign up for the narrative or who wear their, um, you know, their cultural suffering like a badge of pride, or they basically just, I like to call it an ideological dress code. Like one of the mm -hmm. reasons why I, you know, after selling the company, you know, I could go back and try to make movies like I originally moved to LA for, but all of my friends that live in Los Angeles, um, you know, they, they have to put on an ideological suit, a dress code. They have to agree with certain things in order to be let allowed into the writer's room. And there's a lot of things about the entertainment industry in general that have changed in the last 10 years that make me realize, like, this is not worth it anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's why I'm leaving entertainment. Um, but um, a second thing I wanted to mention is that um, all of my friends that are writers, if you talk to them for, like, you know, 10 minutes, they'll tell you everything's great. And then if you dig a little bit, all the writers or people who are directors or are like, you know, struggling with their career, which is usually everybody in LA, they all have an anecdote about basically anti-white racism. So many writers, every writer I know has some kind of a story about how a manager tells them to their face, we're not hiring any straight white males, um, and it's not only that they have the audacity to say that and, you know, do some sort of mental gymnastics to justify it as not being racism, but the fact that it's trendy, it's like they are being racist towards white people because they think it's the morally elevated thing to do, that it's, uh, that it's, that it's an opinion that they wear that looks good on them and is good for their career. And that's just so deeply gross that I was like, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. It is deeply gross. I'm glad you put it that way. It is no different than so my, my fiance right now is um, reading some history books about uh, uh, Nazi Germany and Hitler. He's reading this book. Actually, 
it's a book about Hitler's uh, piano player, which is, I, I didn't, I didn't know he had a personal piano player, but he's been telling me a lot of anecdotes from the book and we were watching part of a documentary. Um, and it strikes me as it is no different. It causes you, if you're, if you're thinking about that time in history, hopefully you're thinking about what's going through the head of different people at the time. How do you get a country to embrace what's happening? And it really strikes me as no different. This sort of um, not hiring any straight white males is considered cool and uh, something that makes you a good person to say. And if he's, it, I'm, I'm struggling to put this into words. If you look back at, at these historical events that now we look at and we say, how could people have done that? It's so obvious. How could you have hated an entire race of people? How could you have let this happen to Jewish people? Well, at the time, as it was evolving, I'm sure you went through these similar stages where it's just like, oh, it's cool and in vogue to insult Jewish people because they're shop owners and they're con- and people look at them as having uh, more privilege and, you know, in society and, and more status and it's okay. That's exactly the kind of, uh, the kind of racism that I'm seeing that's popular now. And I mean, so much so that I ran into, there was a guy here in Austin who I've told this anecdote before, but uh, I was working at a shop. He starts talking to me and he says, he's moving in the Bay area. And this is a white guy. He's like, I'm moving from the Bay Area. And he says, well, there's too many white people there, you know. And uh, and I just, without a beat, I was like, oh, okay, so you're racist. And he was like, no, it's, no. He thought I was going to do the thing that we're supposed to do as woke white people who put on the ideological dress code. And we're supposed to be okay with this kind of racism because it's it's aimed in the right way. And yeah, like, and, it, and it's that presumption that you yeah. just pinpointed also is something that I can't stand. It's this thing where people come up to you and they say things that they don't think are controversial because they presume that, oh, you're a smart person. You must agree with me. You must agree you know? with me. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, I, I've been on the job hunt. I only recently got a job, but I've been in the job hunt for like four months. And one of the another super gross thing that happens on the reg is like, you know, obviously you're in a job interview. Somebody can't ask you, uh, who did you vote for in the last election? You know, cause that's illegal, but they do this weird thing where like at the beginning of the interview, they'll say something that's disguised as small talk. They may not be even aware that they're doing this, but they'll like say something that they're outraged about. And then they'll expect you to then, you know, uh, match that outrage, you know? And if you don't, that indicates that you're one of them. So there have been plenty of times in job interviews that like, you know, people will say something that they're outraged about and like they're waiting for me to say, oh, you know, totally, I totally agree or something like that. Usually I try to just like dismiss it and just like move on to the next topic. But, um, you know, th- that actually brings me to like the whole economic element of this, because like a lot of these people that, you know, luckily I'm not throwing them under the bus by name, but I mean, if they're listening, they know who they are. Um, I get it. When you move to Los Angeles, someone once described Los Angeles to me as a place that is dripping with, uh, or like the vibe can basically be described as a mix of narcissism and desperation. And I think that that completely nails it because people who move to Los Angeles to pursue entertainment, 
they have their their entire identity is built on the fact that they're going to move to Hollywood and pursue their dreams. These are people that come from these small towns all across America. They're the most attractive or most talented one percent of their very small pond, and they're willing to do anything to fulfill this. A narrative of their identity as someone who's going to make it. So you find a lot of people in LA who are willing to do anything to, you know, maintain their sense of identity as a success in the entertainment industry. So that means they'll stab friends in the back. They'll do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of that comes with like, you know, opportunism, you know, like these people that I talk about who, for example, you know, uses his Native American heritage as like his branding for him as a writer. I mean, look, like, if you're in, I don't know, if you're in student, if you have student debt, you've put all your eggs in one basket, you're going to make it in entertainment. Like, you know, you in a sense, you got to do what works or else, you know, you're going to be in the poorhouse. And so I try to, and I don't even know if they're aware of that, but like the, the fact that like, um, you know, I'm about to move to a socialist country, for example. And like one thing that I've been um, kind of reflecting on is how like, the, a social safety net might, and this is just a hypothesis, mm-hmm. it might enable people to be a, more, a bit more brave about these things. Because again, if you've been clawing your way up the Hollywood mm-hmm. ladder, and that's a steep ladder for 15 years, and you don't have any other prospects, and you're still you know, like paying check month to month your rent, and somebody basically says, all right, now you need to like bend the knee ideologically, of course you're going to do it. You know, like it, it's, it's a matter of survival. I view it as, yeah, I think, I think for a lot of people, it's a matter of survival. It's the easiest way to get ahead. And I want to clarify something you, you said earlier about uh, me saying that I try to treat people with good faith. I, I try to, when I meet a new person and they're speaking social justice or whatever they're speaking, I try to treat them in good faith until they give me reason to, to, to not do so. <laughs> I let them give me a reason first. And a lot of the people you're talking about who are very cynically using this ideology to um, to to gain money or popularity or to get a TV show or to sell a book or whatever they're doing, um, I, I I view those people as, as almost no different. They're con artists. They're just using whatever's currently in vogue. If there were something, if there were some other ideology that were currently popular, they would all be speaking that the ones who are do who are operating in, in bad faith. And so um, I don't know if it makes them worse or better than the people who truly believe in this belief system and are sincere believers. I don't know. I do think that the ones who have good intent anyway, and who are, who are in it because they believe it's about ending racism and sexism. Those are the ones I try and keep in mind because I know they can be reached. I know they can leave that ideology because I did. And it's there if you're in it with good faith because you truly think it's a good belief system. I think you can be convinced then that it's not. You, if if somebody um, opens the door in the right way to show you what's wrong with this ideology, you can leave it. But the people who are just cynically using it, they don't even really believe in it. They'll write it to the wheels fall off. They're like, but this is what's popular now, and no yeah. matter what havoc it wreaks on the world, you know, I'm yeah. going to get my TV show. <laughs> I mean, I, I experienced an element of this. Like there are plenty of yeah. things like over the career of running Wisecrack. And I was, you know, again, the main host, I was like the editor in chief. And then I hosted most of the podcasts. Um, you know, of course, there were a lot of things that I wanted to say that I didn't because Jacob and I needed to fucking sell the company, you know. And mm-hmm. so we did. 
Um, and you know, that enabled us to walk away from it. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, like, uh, I, be I believe that some of our, probably a lot of our fans, well, I know for a fact that a lot of our fans think that I'm like a super woke dude. They just assume. Uh, but also like a lot of our advertisers, you know, like as assume that, you know, we're a, um, or that, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I had to play this game too, you know? Uh, one of the things that really bothered me after we sold the company, you know, I had a boss and, um, it was, you know, the day after George Floyd's uh, death, and um, they made me make a statement about it uh, in front of one of our videos. And, you know, despite what the statement is, I just felt like, first of all, like, who the fuck cares what I think about this? Like, you know, I'm making a fucking video about a comic book, you know, like I, not everybody needs to chime in on this. No, and, um, it's so you know, disingenuous. It's yeah. so disingenuous. It's so obviously like, oh, you know, the corporate overlords just want to make sure that nothing bad happens. And I, and I find that to be, you know, gross and of course racist, you know, if you're basically just taking this tragic thing that happened to somebody and, you know, using it as a platform to promote your company and pr to promote like, you know, the the moral righteousness of your company is totally disgusting and like there was uh you know some of the things that made it uncomfortable for me is like you know everyone on the team was like all right yeah we're gonna you know uh record the george floyd message and i was like wait are we sure we want to do this and then like you know i would get messages in all caps from people who were like you know i was their boss and they would just be like what is there to think about um, just like this level of hysteria and like, you know, even though I'm the boss, still can't win. Can't win. That's like religious fervor is right. what that is. Right. All caps screaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, just, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I bit my tongue, I'd be very rich. <laughs> Are you feeling a huge weight off right now? Totally. I mean, even just coming on this podcast and by, and by the way, if anyone ever sees this, that were like wisecrack fans, I'm going to get half of them saying, great. I'm glad you were honest. And half of them are going to say, I'm so disappointed in you. You know, I, I thought you were way better than this. Um, better than I, what? I, I, what is so bad about coming on this podcast and what, what um, in their mind? Well, well just, just mind. the thing yeah. that I'm saying, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Again, have, like like I've heard you say before, you know, I'm just undermining yeah. the narrative. Yeah, they don't. I like asking that question, though, because they can never answer it. It's like, what problem do you have with what I'm saying or with my opinion? And and most of the time they don't even have they haven't even listened to what we say. They haven't even read my post. They, they put words in my mouth that I've never said and opinions in my mind that I don't hold. And because it's easier to paint you as some boogeyman, it's like, oh, you're speaking against social justice. Therefore, you must be this crazy alt-right uh, boogeyman, white supremacist. You know, I've been called all the names. None of them are true. Um, but I, I think that's just it, it's a defense mechanism for them from actually having to listen and figure out what it is you're disagreeing with. You know, it's a, a fundamentalist reacts that way. A religious fundamentalist reacts that way. Yeah, it's uh. it's really unfortunate. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I took this job in Finland. I'm just 
I'm ready to get out of here for a little bit. Yeah. You know, because, you know, to be honest, like this whole culture war thing, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and it's going to it's going to end, you know, like give it a couple of years. Everyone's going to realize, oh, wow, I was being a little bit too crazy and it's just going to go away. And it hasn't yet. And um, what do you yeah. think today? What do you think the trajectory is going to be here in the States? God, I, I don't have a lot of I don't uh, man. I don't know. You know, honestly, it's not something I think about a lot. I think it because I'm trying to kind of not think about it because I think that, um, first of all, I'm a big technophobe. I think that a lot of this has to do with technology. I think that like the biggest villains of our era are the Dorseys and the Zuckerbergs. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, I'll say one thing, and this is going to be the, the most tinfoil hat thing I say on this podcast, but I have, and, and I base this on absolutely nothing, but I really <laughs> believe that uh, like the state of social justice ideology today, which is not a term that I usually use because I just like, again, I'm like ready for, you know, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for it to be over. Um, but um, I really think like at a certain point at the beginning, it was started by academics and people that have recently left academia that were in good faith, really trying to solve racism. And then I think at a certain point, it got taken over by either Russian or Chinese trolls who are just making shit up that sounds stupid. <laughs> and then, and then, and then like, you know, any, all these people on the Twitter army, like any appeal to like, you know, any appeal to social justice or any appeal to greater fervor in, you know, the fight for social justice uh, they'll immediately retweet just to be the first one to accumulate that social currency. So, uh, and then like, then it becomes mainstream. Some of these ideas are so dumb that I really think that like, it's literally Putin on Twitter, just like laughing his ass off. Did you, speaking of dumb ideas, I mean, here's one that's percolated out of the mouth of uh, the child of a former president today. Uh, I saw this one making the rounds. Chelsea Clinton tweeted, Lesson number two from racial rehab today, just because your skin is white doesn't mean you have to be white. Hashtag words of wisdom. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It, <laughs> it doesn't make any this sense. Is why I, this is why I'm not on Twitter. Yeah. I, I mean, think I think that, what she, she's trying is she's like, you know, talking about the whole white fragility thing right she's basically saying that like whiteness is an ideology that i can like you know not be a part of by mm -hmm. humiliating myself on twitter on a daily basis like give me a fucking break um well it's also related to they're trying to equate whiteness with basically any bad character uh flaw or behavior so for example this 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 guy i interviewed recently who's working here in texas in education and is trying to push back against some of this stuff he said now they've gotten to where they'll say a white person who's in social justice if they do something bad or something wrong and instead of saying i'm sorry i did that they'll say oh my bad that was my whiteness coming out <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you can laugh about this. It's actually yeah. too sad. It's actually too sad for me. It is. It's disgusting. But I have yeah. to laugh at it because otherwise, Jared, if I didn't laugh at it, I, I would have to move to Finland or I would have to. I would be so, <laughs> <laughs> I would be so upset. And I know we have so many people in um in our community who struggle with this like 
how do you maintain joy and how do you maintain a positive outlook when you're living in a world that's this upside down with racism and with sexism and where racism and sexism are constantly being talked about, but they're being talked about as a, almost as a mask to the act to actual racism and sexism. Like they are pushing forward into this world, racism and sexism while saying they're doing the opposite. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and the joke is, is that like, if you've actually traveled, America is like the least racist country in the world. Uh, yeah. But a lot of these people who, 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 I guess the ones who believe it sincerely anyway, I think a lot of them haven't traveled. Right. I think they haven't been exposed, you know, to, to other countries. So I want to get back to something you said about LA. You're the first person I've talked to. I've talked to quite a few people who are leaving or who have left social justice ideology, but you were never really in it. You are leaving a place that I also left. And uh, when you described Los Angeles as a place of narcissism and desperation, um, can you describe a little bit more about, I, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about that and why that is. And it's not just, I don't think it's just that you have all these people there who are looking to to make it big or make it famous. Like, why do you think that town in particular is so it's very nihilistic in my opinion? Well, um, I think you may disagree with this and there's a lot of reasons. Um, but lately I have been, uh, and I don't want to trigger you, but in, in the, in the style of a classic Marxist, I really have started to think lately that, uh, race really is a scapegoat for class. And I think that, a lot of this ideology is being propped up by limousine liberals who are literally uh, basically just uh, doing all of these like these token performances of equality that really just justify their extreme wealth and their decadent lifestyles, but actually don't do anything to like fix inequality. And so this ideology is very convenient for them because they don't have to actually fix anything about, uh, you know, inequality or like, you know, people who are black, brown, white, whatever, who are legitimately suffering because all they have to do is, again, humiliate themselves, um, you know, feel guilty and like, you know, tweet about something and then they're off the hook. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I do think it is. I think it is. uh scapegoat for class or it's it's masking like actual class inequalities and it's it's scapegoat is probably a great word because it's it's taking a lot of attention away from i think what some of the real divisions are in this country and some of the real issues and it's what destroyed occupy wall street you know occupy wall street was about class and the occupy movement was drawing a lot of attention to to class inequality and then you know, talking to those I knew on the inside of that movement, it was torn apart from the inside by social justice Marxism, by this whole identity-based, uh, you know, uh, well, I call it, I call it Marxism, but it's it's definitely different from the Marxism that we learned about in history books. Right, and that's like you know, um, you know, it's interesting. Like Jordan Peterson used to be a big uh, p- point of contention. <laughs> between uh, myself and some of the other writers. Um, But I think actually it's come to the point where we all agree now. Um, Even Austin agrees with me. Uh, This is for people who are listening. Uh, The person who years ago, Carrie and I had a uh, debate about Peterson and Austin played the anti-Peterson person. 
And that is just that, like, he is correct in his uh, in his criticism of the excesses of the left. But um, his and we can also use this word again, his scapegoating of Marxism is seemingly is just strange. Um, and um, probably not the most productive thing, you know, I mean, like, I don't consider myself a Marxist, but I mean, if you read Capital and like, don't agree that the guy pretty much nailed how, you know, capitalism functions, you know, then, then you're a zealot if, if, if you can't see that, you know? I think he made the distinction. Maybe he didn't. I've, I've read, I've been on quite a journey since I first was listening to Peterson and, and reading his book, although we're reading his second book now. Um, for our book club. But uh, I think he drew a distinction between Marxism of old and, and this kind of social justice Marxism. And if he didn't, I've just gotten so used to drawing that distinction that I've forgotten. But the way I think of it is sort of, I know people, def- they try and define social justice ideology in different ways. The way in which I've found it easiest to define it for people who are new to trying to understand it is it's, it's a kind of Marxism that's been mutated So instead of saying, you know, the best way to look at the world is as a competition for wealth among class groups, this kind of social justice Marxism, if you want to call it that, says the best way to look at the world is as a competition for power among identity groups. Right. So it's definitely not about class. Yeah. um, And that brings in like this whole notion of concept creep. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but like, so for example, like the word decimate, for example, we all think that decimate means to destroy, but decimate actually means to destroy one out of 10. That's why it has the prefix deca. And so that's why when like people mention Marxism, I never, like, it's a term that's meaningless. Like, you know, is it classical Marxism? Is it like, you know, uh, is it like what you're describing? Is it, um, you know, somebody who's just interest in, interested in political economy? You know, it's just another word that I just try to avoid because I don't think it's particularly helpful. So how do you define this ideology? Do you, you said you don't like to use the term social justice ideology either. Do you have a word for it? And if, <laughs> no, and, I don't. And if people just, are new to it, how do you try and define it for them? Or you just stay away from that? They all know. I mean, you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Like, I don't neatly need to say like SJWs or something like that. I might just say like, you know, the crazier people on the left or just like stupid shit going on. Like, I, you know, I just I, I, I don't I really try not to talk about it as much as possible. Um, and uh you know, for a long time, I tried to convince myself that it didn't bother me, but it really does. And it has for a long time. And really the thing that, um, the thing that's bothered me the most about it. And I think the reason why I can't forget about it is because, um, as much as I would like to believe that there's some other reason why comedy sucks today. And like, we've even made videos on wisecrack about why comedy sucks today. And it had nothing to do with social justice ideologies because we needed some kind of an angle and it had to be something that didn't piss people off, had to be something that didn't piss advertisers off. Um, but sometimes the, the easiest answer is the right one. And unfortunately, I really do think that this ideology that we've talked about has just made comedy just garbage. Like everything, uh, you turn on the TV and like the reason, <laughs> it's just everything is awful. And uh, that's yeah. another thing, like, I got friends who have been hustling and 
LA for 15 years to be writers. And then like, you know, if they're lucky, they get to be, um, on a show that they hate, you know, or a show uh, or on a show in which they require that, like, you know, they apologize for being white every day or something like that, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, there's just like, uh, and when I was mentioning earlier about, um, you know, when you talk to these people, they don't like talking about it, but like, if you bring it up and you really try to like bring it out of them, they'll eventually agree with you that these mm-hmm. things bother them. So for example, I know a guy, he's on a TV show that I, I won't name, but uh, you know, usually this, he's a writer's assistant. Usually when a vacancy happens in the writer's room, the writer's assist, assistant, if he or she has been doing good work, will then fill that space right. with the writer. So this guy has been uh, a writer's assistant for three seasons and he's been passed over like six times, six times, simply because they have to have a racial quota, you know, and, and, and white white males are not, uh, you know, part of the quota that needs to be filled. And, uh, that's not something I, I would, I would open my mouth. I would get ugly. It would just not be good for me. So I'm just like, you know what, I'm not doing this. I'll still keep in touch with friends and maybe in 10 years, if this is all over, you know, I'll, I'll try entertainment again, but it's for right not going to be over until they start speaking up. Like I know, and I know why they're not, I know, look, I don't want to seem like I'm a uh, callous or I, I don't understand the fear. I absolutely do. People have to, they have to put food on their table. They're some of them have kids, they have families they're providing for. And then, there's the added thing of like, we're talking about entertainment specifically. It's all their hopes and dreams. Like we've talked about that they're chasing. And so it, all of this works to keep people quiet, but we need, I think, I think it's not going to be over until we get enough people speaking and not everybody has to speak in the same way or on the same platform or to do it. In the, like not everybody has to start a podcast or quit their job or move to Finland to, or, you know, sell their company in order to take that weight off. But gosh, can we talk about the weight off for a second? Cause I, I want people who are watching this to, who are afraid to, to know that there are positives to learning how to get over your fear, no matter what Avenue that takes. When I quit entertainment, when I moved to Texas, it was a slow process for me. But once I actually was out of it and I realized I can say whatever I want, the, the, the feeling there's no, there's nothing I would do. I wouldn't go back for anything. I wouldn't go back for the level of success I had in entertainment. I wouldn't go back for a higher level of success. I wouldn't go back for lots more money or whatever. Like this is, there's no price tag that I can put on the feeling of relief that you have. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that uh, throughout this entire debacle of building the company and living in L.A. and trying to make it in entertainment, um, uh, Jacob, who, you know, who's my business partner, uh, he very much agreed with me. And so he was a sounding board the whole way that even if I couldn't speak my mind on air, I could at least speak it to him. So the funny thing was, is that this business was being run and founded by two guys who you know, had very different opinions sometimes than the, than the content they were making simply because it was an economic necessity. Wow. And so, so now that you're on this other side of it, do you imagine, I mean, obviously you're not afraid to say what you think about things. Now you're doing this interview. 
do you imagine um, allowing yourself to be, be hamstringed in that way again, or going forward? Is it sort of gaming? It's not going to be my own company kind of thing. So it doesn't matter what I say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly hope that Finns don't care about this stuff and I don't get like, and my job offer doesn't get rescinded. That would be a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Surprise! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be a big surprise. Um, you know, everyone I know who lives internationally, like even Austin, for example, the guy we mentioned earlier, he lives in Australia and he tells me like, yeah, like this shit does not exist outside of the U S like, you know, some of the greater excesses of, uh, this social justice stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to quite frankly, it just not being an issue in like everyday relationships. Um, and, um, in terms of do I, will I feel free to speak my mind? I don't know. I mean, I'm still a very careful person. I'm a pretty neurotic person. Um, you know, like for example, um, Another thing I had to lie about for a long time is that my dog is named Woody and people would ask, so who's he named after? And depending on who was asking, I would say Woody from Toy Story. But the truth is, is he's named after Woody Allen. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, right. Okay. Yeah. And so I remember um, back when I was, I suddenly had a memory of back when I was social justice still or still in it to a certain degree. Didn't you, was it you that pushed back on a post I did where I was just like railing on what a awful predator he was? Was that I'd you or someone else? I'd, I'd be surprised if it was me because I'm pretty, I'm pretty much a Buddhist monk when it comes to holding my tongue on, on uh, social media. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I don't think it was me. Well, um, I will have you know, even though that wasn't you. I recently started, there's so many things now that I'm on the other side of social justice that I have to investigate and I don't have opinions on yet because that's taking quite a while. It's only been a few years. So uh, Woody Allen is one of those things that I just recently was like, okay, let's see what I really think about this now that I'm not in this echo chamber. I watched the HBO thing that just came out, mm -hmm. uh, which was very heavily skewed with one particular narrative that he's guilty Right. And then I also watched an independently produced YouTube documentary just by some guy on YouTube who did an excellent job. Uh, I'll have to find that and plug it in the in the comments. And after watching that, I no longer believe. I no longer believe that he's guilty. And I and even if he is, I no longer believe that the way it's been treated in the press and in the culture at large is fair. And. Yeah. Um, I think that people have rushed to this assumption. I think he's a creepy old skeever. I think he likes, <laughs> uh, young, I think him and Sue, uh, his current wife, um, Sunyi getting together is gross. Um, but do I think, do I believe the allegations that he molested a three-year-old like his, it, or was it six-year-old? No, I don't think I do. Not anymore. Anyway, we can yeah, cut that Woody, out if that's not relevant, but no, 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 it's fine. The important thing about the Woody Allen thing for me is like, I don't know if it happened or not. Um, but like my opinion is that like, if I cast doubt on the fact that it happened, that doesn't mean that I think that Dylan Farrow is a liar because whether or not it happened or not, I think that she believes it happened. Oh, and, I do too. And, um, you know, so the question is whether he did it. And, and like, that's another thing that just like violates the narrative too much to suggest that, um, 
you know, like, yeah, it's possible for a rich kid who's been told this narrative that has come to define her identity since she was five years old um, may actually come to inform her actual memory. Uh, but, yeah. you know, nobody wants to hear that. And like, so at the end of the day, like uh, whether or not uh, it happened, like Dylan Farrow is either a uh, victim of Woody Allen or a victim of Mia Farrow. Either way, I feel bad for her. Really bad for I her. I do too. Yeah. 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 I think it's probably one of those things where there's just a lot of, we like stories that are very cut and dry. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. And it's not a story where there's a good guy. I don't see a good guy in that story. And I think the version that they try to tell where Mia Farrow is a good guy is horse crap. Now that I've looked at some of it, I mean, she comes off to me as clearly someone with some type of cluster B personality disorder and some of her behavior following, you know, learning that he was in a relationship with Suni, I think was just over the top. This is, this is for another day. I'm sorry. I could go down no, this rabbit hole with no, you. No, it's but... <laughs> okay. The, the reason I brought that up is because yeah. I, because like towards the end of my tenure at Wisecrack, when I was starting to give less of a shit, um, there was a woman who came in again that I was considering hiring. So like, you know, I'm the boss again and she meets my dog and she says, oh, what's his name? And I said, oh, his name is Woody. And she said, oh, is it named after Woody Allen? And I figured, oh, OK, she's asking. I guess I can be honest here. And I said, yeah. And she goes, oh, I find that deeply problematic. And, like, and I'm like, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you're supposed to like. I'm I'm considering hiring you and you're fucking mouthing off to me like that. Like, give me a fucking break. Like, yeah, people are, I mean, the audacity that people have to just call out people who they think are like privileged or whatever. Um, you know, again, they don't even think of it as audacious. They think of it as a moral imperative and it's just gross. Can I tell you an answer that would have been more inappropriate? Uh, sure. You could have said, no, he's, He's named after uh, what I get when a pretty woman walks through the room. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh did I do that right? Anyway, you know, sorry. I just thought it was you know, I, I, Well, you know, <laughs> speaking of which, this is kind of totally uh, a little bit of a, um, but like I, you know, I quit in like October wisecrack and I basically haven't been doing anything for, you know, all year. And it's been great. And that's another thing that, like, I think I saw in one of your posts about, like, the new, um, like, the, the new counterculture is just to, like, not hustle and just, like, take care of yourself and take it easy. And that's what I've been doing uh, for the last six months. And I've really come to the conclusion that mental health for men is just testosterone and toxic masculinity. Like, you know, I can't tell you how good it's been for my mental health to just go to the gym every day, pump up that testosterone, and then just shamelessly ogle at women you know with, <laughs> with, with with a bro of mine i mean it's like literally it's been like therapy like the actually the best therapy i've ever had like it's just uh you know and, and i'm just like so unashamed to admit it you know like i'm you know i just can i ask you a question then yeah i i assume that of all there's so many different aspects of social justice ideology but one of them and that we've talked about on the show before and we've had on some experts to talk about this is the way in which it sort of um demonizes masculinity you know it comes up with phrases like toxic masculinity uh the american Psych psychiatric association is now giving guidelines to therapists on how to treat boys with their toxic masculinity and I assume I'm not a man, but I assume all of this is is suffocating to a certain degree where you're just being who you are 
or as Chelsea Clinton would say, you can be a man, but don't be a man. You know, you might be a man. like, is it, is there, when you're saying that it feels so good to just revel in your, your masculinity, what do you mean? And what is that like when, it, when you're in the ideology? Um, well, again, I've never really been in the ideology. I've only pretended to be for economic yeah. reasons. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, again, like Jacob, who's gay, uh, was honestly just like such a mental health lifesaver through the whole process because like, you know, he's he, he's down to objectify men as much as, you know, dudes like to objectify <laughs> women. And so like, you know, he was like that one person that I could say anything to. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, right now I'm in Houston with a childhood friend that I've known for a very, very long time, and I can say anything to him, and he'll give me uh, the benefit of the doubt, you know, that either it's like dark humor or like you know semi-serious. And that's another thing about friends in LA. And another reason why I'm so glad I left is that, um, you know, I think that if someone is really your friend, you should be able to say or do pretty much anything and they should always get your back and come to you like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, that's what friends are for, to like, you know, help people in their most vulnerable thing. But in Assume LA, good faith. it's your a, friend a, a, for goodness a, sake. A, but in L.A., I always had this feeling that if I said the wrong thing, that not only would somebody a so-called friend, you know, like rat me out to the PC police, but they would think that they're doing the right thing and that, uh, you know, like they would, you know, get all these like career points for doing so. And so they don't have else. friends. They have allies. They don't have friends. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. And, I was sick of, and, you know, the, the pandemic put all that into focus for me because I was like away from L.A. when the pandemic was really bad. And I was like, wait a second. I don't miss anyone. Why the fuck would I go back? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Another story that I just thought of that I quickly want to tell you. So when we sold the company, uh, the company that bought us put us in contact with a PR rep because we were going to like, you know, it was going to be announced in like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and whatnot. And they put me on the phone with this PR rep. And I don't think she was prepped as to what the conversation was going to be or what the subject was. But she literally said to me, I tried to explain like, all right, so we're this media company's podcast videos. And she said, okay, does anybody in, the, is anybody in the founding team, are they white males with a sordid past? Because that's, what's going to get the clicks these days. You know, as she just said that to me, like so shamelessly and so deeply cynically, you know, and, and that's when I realized like I, why I have to be so careful is because it's not only that people, you know, uh, feel a greater sense of moral elevation for you know ruining these people's lives but there's actually an economic incentive like this is a uh, a cottage industry the outrage industry is you know right so she was asking if any of the people at your company were white males with the sort of past because that would be good because for getting clicks yes wow yeah just straight up like i couldn't believe it and um but that's just like in la like, you know, if you're hopefully sane and don't live in Los Angeles, that sounds like something that would be too gross for a professional to ever say. But it's totally upside down world in L.A. The professionals show that they are professional by saying things like that. By just being upfront, just like in the writer's room, they say, sorry, we can't hire any white men right now. That's They'll right. Just tell you right, straight up. And you're supposed to just say, like, yeah, I deserve that or, or whatever. You're supposed to take it gracefully, you know. My friend in that particular situation, like, 
I can't even get him to agree that it's wrong. He agrees that it sucks, but I can't get him to agree that what's done to him is wrong. I don't know if it's because he really believes it. I don't know if he's just being careful. But, you know, at some point, what's the difference? Like, I sometimes think about, like, you know, North Koreans. Like, are they too scared to, uh, you know, say that they don't believe that Kim Jong-un never poops? Or do they actually believe it? And at some (laughs) point, I don't think there's a difference. And uh, with a lot of these SJWs, I don't think there's a difference between them being uh, scared and that's why they're adopting the ideology versus really believing it. Yeah, it's like Jordan Peterson says when you when he's asked about God. I don't know if he's changed his answer on this recently, but he would uh, he was he would always say, "Well, I act as if I believe God exists." Right. And for some Christians, they felt that's not enough, you know. And I, it's enough for me. I don't. I don't. My I don't need my life isn't dependent upon whether he's a believer or not. You know, I think he's done a lot of good work and. Uh, anybody who's a Christian who has like an issue with that, I, I, I just don't understand why you would have an issue with somebody else's salvation or their belief or what have you. But anyway, the point he's making is that he behaves as if he believes God is real. And right. what the point you're making like, is these people behave as if they believe the ideology is right. good. Just like, you know, Russ Kalnikov uh, acts as if there is a God, although intellectually he convinces himself that there isn't that's peterson's always talking about dostoevsky who's my favorite author which was another weird thing because we'd always talk about dostoevsky on the uh channel just because it was the one author that i had the most knowledge on uh but we would always you know never mention the overlap with you know peterson oh that's a shame what do you have you read any peterson do you have your own personal opinions on him so I haven't read his uh, 12 Rules of Life book. But again, my opinion is that, uh, you know, he is correct in his um, criticisms of the left. But, um, you know, in terms of using the word Marxism to uh, describe these, this whole social justice movement religion, um, I understand, like he's, he explained it in the whole uh, Zizek debate. Uh, and mm-hmm. Zizek is actually my favorite philosopher. And even like oh. in, among, among academia, like that's not cool to say anymore because, you know, he is critical of political correctness. He is critical of the LGBT uh, community and stuff like that. And, and you know, that's not acceptable. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think that in the same way that he theorizes that, like, you know, this frame of reference is just like a slightly altered Marxism. I think that you can probably, you know draw transparency with like a a lot of ideologies. I just don't Mm -hmm. find the Marx comparison very useful because I I still believe that most people who read Marx are going to come away with some things they agree with. And that's okay. You know, like you don't have to agree with the whole thing. I think so too. I think it's just divorced from Marx. It's like, it's the concept uh, creep. Yeah, it's concept creep. You know, Marx is dead, but his ideology lived on. And then it got taken by other people and morphed into some of the root, like a germ of an idea got taken and turned into this other thing. The only reason I use it in comparisons is because if people have an idea of what Marxism is in terms of this whole struggle between groups over class, but it's it's all the groups are determined by uh, by class you can easily then help them understand better what this ideology is, at least in, when I've tried to describe it. If they know what that is, then you can say, okay, right. now imagine that, but but the the groups are based on identity 
And what they're struggling for is power. And we have to go in and forcibly redistribute power. And right. So yeah, it's like a so, convenient it's a convenient communication tool, but yeah, it, yeah. it has kind of turned into like a moral panic about Marx that I don't think is justified. Well, I would actually agree with that, probably. I think. <laughs> and yeah. I actually found that a lot of Marxists, like the classical kind of Marxists, are really upset about social justice ideology. And I think rightly so view it as something that's drawing focus from movements like Occupy Wall Street. So I wanted to ask you about cancel culture in L.A. And there are people who it's still today, amazingly, on Twitter will say cancel culture isn't a thing. Can you tell me about your experience with cancel culture? And yeah, so um I lived, I had a roommate for many years when I was in LA and uh, she was very active in the UCB comedy community. And, you know, you always hear these stories about, you know, the James Franco's and the Kevin Spacey's of the world where, you know, they're canceled so they can't act anymore, at least in Hollywood productions or whatever. But, you know, they're rich dudes. They're fine. The really scary thing happens when there are people who are, you know, low ranking comedy people who probably have never gotten their first paid writing gig before who are getting run out of town. Um, and, uh, you know, that really sucks. And that was happening on the reg. And I got really scared. And, you know, like, especially since at the time, I think this started in like 2015. And there was a guy who was a teacher who, um, you know, was uh, really, uh, he would just like hit on students, which is creepy. It's not ethical. Um, you know, he just definitely deserved to be reprimanded. Um, just the, uh, the level of uh, vengefulness and, uh, you know, just like cutthroat, you know, need to go straight to the jugular, need to ruin this man's life and run him out of town for something that never they never even gave him a chance to correct is just scary. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, me being a white guy who grew up in Houston, Texas, among mostly black people who used my knowledge and cultural history of black people to create a black character, I was really afraid that that was going to happen to me. And as, and as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, like there had been a number of attempts, but nothing ever really went that viral because I think like by the time people were attacking me, the show was like, you know, pretty much just used as a study guide at that mm -hmm. point, you know, the virality of it had kind of worn off. So nobody really cared. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've mentioned that like being part of SJW ideology and being, um, you know, uh, active in canceling people is not only good for your career, but good for, you know, your kind of social status among your friends. But another element of this is that um, I would find that there are people who are struggling with their career who, um, for lack of a better word, they just like get really up in arms about or they get very active in this ideology because um, they're resentful about the fact yes. that they that they haven't gotten success in Hollywood. And um, that also really scared me. Um, and, and, you know, Zizek, one of the things he says is never underestimate the spirit of envy and uh, how it uh, tells people or it makes people do disgusting things. And I've seen it, you know, um, and, uh, you know, of course, the whole other thing about this ideology that is befuddling to me is just like this suggest and Zizek talks about this. He says that 
you know, just because something horrible has happened to you doesn't make you a moral exemplar. Like poverty and being displaced, uh, you know, like Syrian refugees and something like all these horrible things that they've gone through doesn't necessarily make them great people. Now, his point is that we should help them anyway, but let's not pretend that these people are saints. And, um, you know, I think that there's just like this race to like, you know, be untouchable, this race to sainthood, this mm -hmm. race to, um, you know, like protect yourself from criticism by becoming a victim as quickly as possible. And again, like the incentive is there, you know, it's only natural for this to happen. Um, I feel like we're going off topic. I feel like I'm just. No, <laughs> this is this is right on topic for me because that spirit of resentment absolutely fuels it. That was one of the things that I heard Peterson talk about that really connected for me in trying to when I was trying to understand what I had been caught up in for so long, trying to understand it better. And I heard he gave a lecture about uh, the Bible. He gave a lecture about Cain versus Abel. This is an old lecture, too. This was from the 80s. I watched an old video. It was called uh, Evil versus Tragedy. And in it, he talked about using the Cain and Abel story as an allegory for two different ways of being in the world. Abel uh, being grateful and making the necessary sacrifices and Cain being someone who's resentful, not making the necessary sacrifices and that that path ends up in murderous rage. And it's a lot more involved than that. But the way that he described it, it helped me to understand better that my whole ideology, which I do, I do call social justice ideology, was was about resentfulness at the heart of it. You know, it's about these other th ways I've described it. It's about you know looking at the world as a struggle for power among identity groups. But but what fuels that? I think there's a lot of resentment at the heart of it, and um, and I do think people, cynical people, are using it uh, not just to try and 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 attain things for themselves, like worldly things for themselves. But also, as you said, uh, never underestimate the spirit of envy just to tear others down. It's not even that they need to get something from it. I think some people just really love destroying others. They get they get off on it. It's like, I don't have to get something from I don't have to get a TV show from this. But if I can cancel you and make sure you never get that TV show you really wanted, like that's the spirit with which people are move, are, are going into this. So, yeah. I think you're yeah, right. And, and and again, like that's a place where there's no friends and everything is super gross. You know, one thing I, I wanted to say that I just remembered and sorry mm -hmm. if we're just kind of like jumping no. between uh, topics. But uh, one of the things that bothered me about Wisecrack and one of the reasons why I left, although not a huge reason, was that I felt that uh, my intended message was not getting across because towards the end, Wisecrack was all about uh, media analysis. Um, you know, we did it with literature, with thug notes, and then, you know, we eventually came to like, you know, analyze Marvel movies, use it as a lens to teach philosophy and all things that, you know, I very much believe, believed were, you know, good things. But I found that what, what needs to happen, I find is that People need to – right now, there is 100% responsibility placed on the communicator in any given discourse. So let's say that someone's making a joke and it's like a racist joke or something like that or somebody's making a film and it's a film that's you know maybe says a joke that could be 
interpreted as problematic. Right now, the responsibility is 100% on either the creator of the art piece or the communicator to not offend. However, I think that that responsibility needs to be shared with the interpreter. And we have a, you know, this kind of goes to a more like Christian ethics with turning the other cheek. I believe that it's actually um, righteous to, you know, right now we have the, sorry, I'm not explaining this well, but like right now mm -hmm. it's such that like, if you make a racist joke, um, mm -hmm. it's automatically interpreted as like the most hateful thing that anyone could say, rather than using your interpretive ability to say, okay, so given the context, this person said this joke to somebody he's known for 30 years, it harkens back to, you know, a joke that they made on the playground, you know, the actual intent doesn't actually reflect anything antagonistic or malicious, therefore, it's okay. You know, there's zero responsibility on interpretation. And that's something that desperately needs to change. Yeah, I think you're right. There's, we're, we've taken all responsibility out of from, from personal responsibility from people to learn how to interpret, look at things in context, to be your better self and not fly off the handle and, and, and go into things in bad faith, looking to be offended. Right. People need to start. I, what I hear you saying is, is that people need to start um, being more gracious when it comes to interpretation instead of automatically. I think we're in this place where we're automatically assuming the worst intent possible uh, and looking, looking for it and never looking for that context. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you for making that much clearer. Oh, no, look, I'm surprised I can put any words together today, Jared. I'm on day three of a juice cleanse and my brain is oh. mush without coffee. <laughs> like, I'm like, I can't believe I'm even making it through this. Anyway. Well, good. Well, good for uh, you. It, it also, we all know, I don't, I don't know any, even the most avid social justice warrior, even if I talk to my, the old version of myself and ask them this question, we all know examples of jokes that are so-called so racist jokes that we know are not racist and we know the person making them doesn't mean anything there that in the context, it is not a racist joke. And I'm thinking most recently of one that most often when I hear them these days, it's they're told by black people or by Asian people because white people are like, oh, I'm not going anywhere near that joke. I'm going to let someone else in the room take that, you know, <laughs> like, but, yeah. but, but the kind of jokes that, and, and everybody can think of one. And if you, yeah, I think you're lying. I just don't trust you. Like, of course you're lying. Yeah. There's nobody. <laughs> there's nobody in the world that's never said the N word, even though everyone in LA will say that they haven't. You know, there are people who claim to love rap music and they say they've never said the N word. Give me a fucking break. You know, like, um, it's like, yeah. I mean, people are being, yeah, uh, straight up liars, but they're doing it out of fear. And um, you know, I think that the basic lesson of semiotics needs to be taught which there is something that is said and there is what being there's some there's the indicate indicator and then there is the indicated so basically like you know just because somebody says something that basically there's no meaning outside of context and people need right. to analyze this context and derive meaning from that rather than immediately jumping to all right what's the most offensive right. or what's the most, uh, you know, uh, uh, like you said, assuming the worst from somebody. Right. That's why now I'll try and I'm not very good at it, but I'll try and make the, uh, so-called sexist joke once in a while, because especially if I'm talking to a dude, it's like, 
I know he's not going to make that joke, even though it's wide open. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, ma- I make Jew jokes all the time. I consider it to be my duty as a Jew to like, you know, <laughs> to, to just like have them out in the open, you know, because no one else is going to say them, you know, yeah. and like it's, it's, it's the only thing that the SJWs will allow me to do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jared, I so enjoy talking to you today. I really, I feel that. Yeah, absolutely. That weight that you mentioned, I do feel a weight has been lifted off of you and I'm very happy for you. And I hope that things go well in Finland with games. Although, you know, I've been, I have talked to a few gamers recently uh, uh, via uh, Nerdrotic and there are some gamers sometimes on the Friday Night Tight stream. And I know that social justice stuff has moved there. I just hope it hasn't moved into where you're going to be working. So, yeah, I've heard that too. Um We'll wait and see. You yeah. Know, there might, there may be no escape, but uh, I don't know. I have to, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, can I tell you a mea, a mea culpa that I did? So you were not a believer, but you were had to stay quiet about certain things uh, to maintain, you know, until you guys could sell your company. I was a true believer and here's one of the embarrassing things I did. I recently introduced you to a friend of mine who's a filmmaker who is a wrong thinker. I, I, you know what's going on now in entertainment? Tell me if you felt this too. I, there are all these, it's almost like the uh, Underground Railroad. There's this whole system of people that's forming, of people quietly like introducing one another to other wrong thinkers in different fields. I've, I've had people from... Uh, entertainment executives. I've had writers. I've just had different people reach out to me. And whenever I can, I'm like, oh, you should meet this person or you should meet that person. And it's this whole connection that's now happening underground where people are quiet about it. Of like, oh, like speakeasies or something, you know, like, oh yeah, he's got, he's got some problematic views. Um, Anyway, I introduced you to this guy. And one of the last things I did before I left LA and folded my company, I was still in the ideology then he and his uh, co-writers had written this hilarious script, this film script. And I was trying to help them uh, push it forward. And one of the things I did was I went through and offered them some edits to make it more social justice friendly. So when they were pitching it, (laughs) it wouldn't get viewed as problematic. Now, in a way, I'm embarrassed by that, but in a way, I'm, I, I guess I'm not because I think part of that was just pragmatic. I was thinking about how that they were going to be received in the room. And I'm like, oh, they don't even see this character. We need to change the gender of this character. We need to do this and we need to do that, you know, to, to make this more PC. Oh, but man, it, it's, been, it's been that's something I did back when I was in it. And uh, I'm glad I'm on the other side of all that now where I don't have to say things I, I don't believe or. Um, try and help smooth over ideas so they fit better in this sort of religious totalitarian thing that's going on in the world right now. So anyway, that's rambly. No, I mean, and those conversations from what I've heard, every, everyone is having those conversations. That is the conversation that's happening in Hollywood right now around every project. It's all about why now, why is this relevant now? It has to make some kind of like, you know, liberation statement of some kind. Um, there was one project that, uh, for the brief time that I was working at the company that, uh, bought Wisecrack, part of my job was to like, um, to, uh, like, 
find TV show ideas and bring them to our development exec. Our development exec and I just didn't get along because we just had very different tastes. But there was this one guy I met who was this black guy who said, you know, all this black content today is about like, oh, no, a kid, you know, was about to get a scholarship, but then he got gunned down in the street. Like, I just want to make a show about black guys smoking weed just so black people can have fun. I just want it to be fun, you know? And I was like, wow, that's something that like resonates with me so much. And I tried to push this project, try to push this project, but you know, nobody wanted it because, you know, no, it's yeah. just about having fun. It's just about frivolity. Right. Exactly. No, yeah. That's not going to happen. That's it's amazing. It's amazing to me how much it's changed too. Do you think it's going to shift back? Because I usually say when I get asked to do interviews, um, I think back to how we, there was a time when we were pitching shows and everybody wanted an Anthony Bourdain style show. This is just an example I give. They're all like, oh, that's a great pitch, but can you make it in the style of like Anthony Bourdain where you travel on the... <laughs> and everybody was looking for this thing because they viewed it as a winning formula. And years before, there was something similar when I was pitching with some clients where it's like they all wanted this formula. Right now, I think a lot of networks and stuff there, and, and people who are buying content and they're looking at stuff and they're saying, oh, woke is the formula right now. That's what we want is woke. Even though the audiences don't want it. But that's what they're looking for is woke. Do you think that there's going to come a shift at some point where there's a new formula that everybody's trying to shoehorn stuff into? I don't know. It depends on when Netflix and HBO go and all these companies actually have to make money. Because like we're, it's a strange time now where like in the past we would have these entertainment ideas and then they would air on television and then the ratings would become public and we could see whether a show was successful or not. These days, Netflix is just a complete black box. So, you know, everyone is saying that we need woke material, woke materials because it's what Silicon Valley wants. But we have no idea if anyone's even watching these shows. Um, so... Uh, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I believe that whatever's making them the most money is going to, you know, be what they pursue. I have a hard time believing that it's going to be a lot of the stuff that they're making now simply because like, you know, 40% of the country or whatever doesn't want to hear that shit. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm hoping the free market, you know, allows for, you know, some content that's a little bit more enjoyable to a broader audience. I, I, I don't know. I think you're right. I think they have to get to a point where money matters to them again, because right now it doesn't. Right now no, they're content to keep putting up woke shows with plummeting, you know, audience participation and, and as, they're okay. And as a matter of fact, like that's a, one of, another thing about uh, Hollywood that's so cynical is that like, you know, in, in most fields, you know, the most competent person gets the job out of necessity. But in Hollywood, like it doesn't matter because all the shit is so awful anyway that like, you know, I mean – it doesn't matter if you hire shitty joke writers. It's more important that like, you know, you have a uh, like a, a writing group that has like this aesthetic of diversity that like builds this narrative of it being a ethical show that matters more than if the show is actually good. Because, again, nobody knows how well the show does. Netflix doesn't tell anybody. It's just a charade. It's amazing. They just yeah. want to make the, get the optics right in the room. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the and narrative controls everything, you know, uh, sadly enough, like the most important thing, if you're making it in Hollywood, it doesn't matter what you write. It matters that you write it. Meaning like, you know, your narrative of being like, I don't know whether you're like an army veteran who, you know, did six tours in Iraq and now you're creating a show about, uh, 
you know, like uh, injured veterans or something like that. Like it, it has to be that. It can't just be that a guy who's never seen combat has a great idea and just so happens to have the skills to deliver on this same idea. It has to be that kind of like meta narrative. Yeah. Are there any shows currently, independent shows like on YouTube? You, you guys created an, an empire of series under under the Wisecrack umbrella. Um, are there any series that you see that are emerging now which give you hope or which you just really enjoy or which are silly? Yeah. And- so my favorite anti-woke comedian is uh, Long Beach Griffey. Do you know him? I don't. Okay. Oh, he's great. Uh, so funny. Um, and then, uh, I think Ryan Long is pretty good. Um, he's, he's definitely got a voice, you know, the, um, the one anti-woke content play that's going on right now and actually is one that got investment, which surprises me because nobody's investing in digital content these days is, uh, the Babylon B, which I actually do not think their content is very good. I think it's actually just clapter for the other side of the aisle. Oh, really? Yeah. The Babylon Bee. Uh, I like those guys a lot of the time. I think they've... But have you, uh, but have you, I like their articles too, but have you seen their videos? Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, they've they've got like produced, you know, expensive looking YouTube videos up now. You should check it out. I mean, it's just a lot of sarcasm. Oh, uh, uh, okay. And, and again, I just think like, oh, okay, so this is what it's like for, uh, you know, conservatives to have watched The Daily Show. You know, it's oh, just... Oh, yeah, I hate just, that. Yeah. I, can I talk about this for you with a second? Carter and yeah. I always get in this little sticking point because I don't like sarcasm for the most part. I do like it. I like it when it is the best tool for the job and when it is used uh, cuttingly. But, but but people use it all the time as a crutch. They overuse it. And I have yeah. a real problem with that. And I'm like, this is just lazy. Sarcasm isn't just saying the opposite of what you think. It's like when people come into a comment thread and they're like, oh, I guess Trump is the greatest president ever and we should just put kids in cages, huh? And I'm like, what? What does that even mean? I don't believe those things. Do you? Why are you saying them? You obviously don't believe them, but you're too lazy to try and articulate what you actually believe. And (laughs) anyway, I have a problem with that. No, I I completely agree. It's like that. I I never even liked The Daily Show back when Jon Stewart was doing it because I was just like, all right, so it's just... uh, Here's the other side's opinion, and here's a funny face, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't like that. Okay. Well, now yeah. I've got to check out these videos and see if I share your opinion. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm also going to check out Long Beach Griffey. I had not heard of him. And um, Jared, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Any you parting for- words? Uh, yeah, uh, if you want to check me out on Instagram, it's really the only social media I do. I'm also on Facebook, uh, but it's at Father of Woody. Also, um, you know, before I decided to leave entertainment, I wrote a spec for South Park, which is still the greatest show on the air. Um, so uh, if you want to read my South Park script spec, just DM me. I'll send it to you. <laughs> right on. If you, know, if, if you know Trey Parker or if Trey Parker's listening, I'm your man. I will somebody, not move to Finland for you. <laughs> somebody get this video to Trey Parker so he will not move to Finland and we can turn comedy around in the States, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, little, I'm, a, I'm a little bit worried that Trey doesn't have it in him for much longer because he's really the only person that still has the hall pass to say whatever he wants in comedy. I mean, Mel Brooks is going to be dead in a couple of years. You know, it's uh, yeah. that's one thing I didn't get to talk about is how, like, you know, I, I'm very uh, precious about Jewish comedy. And that's something that, like, you know, is not really allowed anymore. It's, it's some forms of Jewish comedy, like Larry mm-hmm. David and 
like Larry David in some of the later seasons of Curb, you know, he made like a uh, an episode about like uh, I think lesbians that he probably wouldn't have been able to got, get away with if he wasn't an eighty year old man. Uh, you know, of course, like Blazing Saddles would never exist today. Even the producers, the whole the whole premise of the show basically relies on a on a gay joke. You know, I'm sure that's not PC anymore. You know, like there was a there was a tradition of Jewish comedy that was always edgy. It was always like, you know, pushing buttons, pushing boundaries. And that was always something that I really identified with. And that was very sacred to me. I mean, even early Woody Allen stuff. And uh, now it doesn't seem like there's a place for it. And I wouldn't say South Park is Jewish comedy by any means, but you know, he still kind of has that hall pass to say whatever he wants, like Mel Brooks and Larry David has to a certain extent. And um, you know, in my opinion, he just has a, he has a moral imperative just keep the show going forever because they may never give those hall passes out again yeah ricky gervais you don't think he has a hall pass i don't know his comedy really well but didn't like i mean he got shit on for like one of his oscar speeches or whatever and i don't think he's being invited back so i wouldn't say it's like necessarily uh you're right it's not, not canceled, a but he, he does he just doesn't care that's what the thing is they they haven't given him the hall pass, but he's running down the halls anyway. Right. Whereas with Trey Parker, it's like uh, he says something outrageous and it's just like, oh, it's South Park. You know, like yeah. there's just like it's somehow OK, um, yeah. which is great. It should be. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So, again, mm -hmm. if Trey Parker's listening, it's my dream to write on your show. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Jared. And thank you guys for tuning in. You have been watching Unsafe Space. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please direct any appeals to our internal review board, at dev null. Please note that seppuku, while encouraged, does not guarantee absolution. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Thank you for participating in our longitudinal study of new and exciting messenger RNA gene therapy techniques. Please make a note of any abnormal growths, loss of vision, difficulty breathing, or death. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.